It is February 14, 1913, and Governor Oswald West wants to shoot saloon owner August Erickson. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Well, I'm upper-upper-class high society, God's gift to ballroom notoriety. And I always fill my ballroom, the event is never small. The social pages say I've got the biggest balls of all. I've got big balls. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at ORHistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. Oregon's 14th governor, Oswald West, held the office for only one term from 1911 to 1915. Originally from Canada, Oswald West's family relocated to Salem, Oregon when Oz was four years old. At the age of only 37, he decided to run for the highest office in the state. At the time in Oregon, Democrats were the minority in the state, with Republicans outnumbering them by three to one. West recognized these odds and wisely decided to run as a nonpartisan politician. Once he won the governor's chair, Oz did pretty well. Behind maybe Tom McCall, West is regarded as Oregon's second best-known historical governor and may even have been Oregon's best governor. Former governor and Tom McCall nemesis Mark Hatfield said of West, I know of no single individual whose administration has made more of an impact in Oregon history. And that's not just some exercise in politically motivated revisionist history and hindsight being 2020 sort of bullshit. Even West's contemporaries could see the foreshadowing of a great leader. As the editor of the Medford Mail Tribune predicted on the announcement of his successful election, Mr. West will make the best governor Oregon ever had. But we hate to break it to you, dear ass-kicker, but Oz West? Well, Oz West could be kind of an asshole. Now you know us, dear ass-kicker. We wouldn't make such a suggestion without the facts to back it up. And let us give credit where credit is due. Oswald West's forward-thinking vision on Oregon's beaches truly established the treasure that we own, the experience that we know, as a trip to the Oregon beach. Oswald helped establish the wet sand area of Oregon's beaches as public property. The concept was not revolutionary. 
It was based on an expanded interpretation of an 1899 act that proclaimed that Clatsop County beaches between high and low tide were to be considered highways. West's call to the legislature asked to lengthen this aged protection. The argument was that oftentimes the beaches were the only route for public travel, so the beaches became official highways from Washington to California. And we are truly thankful for this West-inspired modification. And of course, our environmental governor, Tom McCall, further built upon and helped better define these existent legislations when he signed House Bill 1601, the Beach Bill, in 1967. But not before the legislature nearly killed it. And even then, the bill languished for months, nearly ignored. Just a friendly reminder that the beaches we take for granted were not always taken for granted. But in addition to beach legislation, West had other significant accomplishments. He helped create a workers' compensation program. He was a proud proponent of women's suffrage. He established a state board of control that helped make Oregon state institutions of the Oregon State Hospital and prisons at least somewhat more consistent and humane. The board of control was one of the bureaucratic constructions that Tom McCall became a member of when he was Secretary of State and deeply connected to as a governor. Governor Oswald West made remarkable, positive contributions to our state. At his death in 1960, the Oregon Journal eulogized that perhaps no one in the state's history leaves a more lasting impression on it than West. Now, ass kickers, let's go behind the eulogy and look at some of those less remembered impressions. <laughs> West had said of Oregon politics, It was no clean business. It was dog-eat-dog. And West was the top dog. He was one vetoing motherfucker, too. Oz holds the record for the most vetoes by any Oregon governor. Facing a combative Republican legislature, West showed he would not fuck around. He announced that if the legislature kept killing his initiatives, he would veto their favorite bills, even before he read them, and whether the bill had merit or not. West vetoed 63 bills in the 1911 session. Another at-any-cost scheme had House Speaker John Rusk locked in his office so West's associates could suspend parliamentary procedure to get a favored piece of legislation passed. West was the proverbial bull in the china shop, and he would push through his own agenda taking no prisoners. As historian Chester Case has written, the governor's strong sense that what he was doing was right led him to employ methods that were often bizarre, sometimes devious, and even at times autocratic, but always colorful and bearing the stamp of his personality. Regret. He 
Governor West had no problem letting his constituents know that he was for the enforcement of morality, specifically his personal vision of what appropriate morality should be. West was determined to control the industries publicly peddling vice across the state, but his moral crusade wouldn't stop there. West also wanted to criminalize activity taking place within the parlors, the living rooms, the kitchens, and yes, even the bedrooms of private homes across the state of Oregon. Oz was certainly not a fan of liquor. In fact, one of his endearing legacies was the desire he expressed of wanting to shoot a bartender. Governor West was a massive, indeed militant force behind the state's prohibition movement. Ballot Measure 332, also called the Oregon Dry Initiative, proposed to criminalize alcohol. The movement relied heavily on Governor West as a spokesman. His editorial on the initiative presides an insightful read. Oregon should go dry, because there does not exist a single reason why it should stay wet. The war news from Europe strikes us with horror. Yet this great war, with all its carnage, past, present, and future, will not provide a drop in the bucket compared to the ravages which are being made throughout the land by booze. We boast we are the greatest nation upon earth, and in our efforts to preserve this position, we boast we must strive to constantly raise, or at least maintain, the standard of our citizenship. And to accomplish this end, we must unceasingly fight organized greed and graft, stamp out poverty, vice and crime, protect the home, and make life more pleasant for those who have been less fortunate than others. It is idle, however, to talk of progress along these lines so long as King Alcohol occupies the throne. Who grabs the paycheck from the honest workman on Saturday night and makes his wife and little ones go hungry? Mr. Booze. Who sows the seeds of poverty and distress everywhere? Mr. Booze, who loads upon us most of our tax burdens? Mr. Booze. The wets protest against our voting the state dry because it will close Paul Wessinger's brewery and be equivalent to the confiscation of his property. 
But they do not tell you how the brewery was built through the ruination of homes and the confiscation of paychecks. They do not tell you that every brick in the building represents a broken heart, and the color of the building is emblematical of the blood which has dripped therefrom. Whenever I think of the devil, I think of booze. And whenever I think of booze, I think of the devil. But the devil is booze, and booze is hell. Old booze is an outlaw who has been long pursued but never subdued. And no time and under no circumstances should he be given quarter. And it is the duty of every good citizen to stand ready and sandbag him whenever he sticks his head in sight. All Oregon will have a chance to sandbag him on November 3. And for the Lord's sake, let's make a good job of it. Heavily influenced by Oswald West, Oregon went dry in 1916. Alcoholic beverages were legally unobtainable for the next 17 years. Resident historian Doug Kent Crispin recently sat down to talk about Oswald West with author Heather Arndt Anderson, local food historian and author of Breakfast, A History. This is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, and I am sitting down with Heather Arndt Anderson, who has a very interesting Oswald West story for us. Thanks for joining us today, Heather. Sam, thanks for having me. I I do have a pretty good Oswald West story. I was uh, doing some reading about a a fruit cannery strike that happened in uh, 1913 in southeast Portland, and uh, and Oz West is involved. Um, So it's, it's June 1913. It's the peak of Oregon's fruit season. And it's a bumper year for cherries. Oregon Packing Company, it's located in southeast Portland over on 8th and Belmont, uh, where there's a um, bowling alley now, employed around 200 people, mostly women and teenagers, to clean and sort the fruit for canning. The company paid a piece rate, which meant that the workers got paid based on how many boxes of fruit they could get through in a 10-hour shift. The strawberries were pretty fast to process, but the cherries were a huge pain in the ass. Sometimes the boxes came with twice the uh, normal amount of fruit in them, which meant that the worker had to do twice as much cleaning and trimming to get the same measly dime. So the workers are already getting screwed out of decent pay, but on top of that, the company didn't even provide sanitary working conditions. The women had to take their lunch breaks in the boiler room. So the women went on strike, and this is when shit went completely bananas. Oswald West, uh, based on information he got from one of his aides, decided to intervene. He hops a train to Portland for a meeting at City Hall between the strikers and the Oregon Packing Company. Um, He figures he's going to straighten everything out. Of course, he didn't call the sheriff or the mayor first. No, he just wanted to take matters into his own hands. Um, The Oregonian criticized him for this, insisting that, quote, cool heads and firm hands, unquote, were what the situation needed. Um, Meanwhile, the Oregonian, who was in love with Mayor Albee, was reporting on how many cops were beating up the strikers, um, which gives us an idea of what kind of firm hands they think that the situation called for. Um, According to the O, though, West told the strikers that they'd better, quote, obey the law or be visited by severe penalties, end quote. Uh, West demanded that the strikers work with their bosses and the Oregon Industrial Welfare Commission to solve the problem. 
Um, and by the way, one of uh, the commission board, it was the one woman had been West's school teacher down in Salem when he was a kid. Tom Burns uh, was an IWW organizer. It's the Industrial Workers of the World. Um, he was leading the strike. Uh, he was not impressed with West's suggestion to let the OIWC make all the deals with the packing company, and he implied that the OIWC might not have the strikers' best interests in mind. This is uh, where Oswald West completely lost his shit. Um, the Oregonian stated, this is all quote, he leaped nimbly on the table, galloped its full length, and leaning over Burns with shaking finger, shouted in an effort to make himself heard above the bedlam, you know that isn't true. There was a little woman on that commission who used to be my teacher when I was a boy, and I know that there is no more honest person living than she is, end quote. And he stayed on that table and kept yelling at Burns until Burns backed down, because you don't fucking say anything about Oswald West's school teacher. And that's my Oz West is kind of an asshole story. Tumbling on the tile floor of the lower corridor of the state capitol building tonight, Governor West, with his hands clutched on the throat of Frank L. Perkins, a newspaper reporter, through Perkins, and in a wild confusion of flying feet and arms, a battle royale was carried on between the state executive and the reporter. Oz West wasn't afraid of a good old-fashioned all-in beatdown either. The wrath of Oz was duly demonstrated on one fine occasion, and a reporter who had been talking shit was the target of his legendary rage. As Perkins and West passed in the hall of the state capitol building, the governor was reported to have said, Did you speak to me? I don't want any dirty lying crook to speak to me. The reporter responded with a quick, I haven't lied to you. And then Governor West went the fuck off. West jumped and grabbed Perkins by the throat. The two men fell, tumbled, and landed on the floor in a writhing, squirming pile. The governor found himself on top, pushing down on the other man's throat as Perkins kicked his legs frantically and connected with West's stomach. Two lawmakers quickly jumped in and separated the men as a crowd of other legislators gathered. But Perkins didn't seem all that phased by the choking he received from Oregon's top dog. As he was being hauled away by a legislator, he yelled, I don't care if you're governor of the state. Come back at me if they let you loose, and I'll give you something to think about. So, how well did our kick-ass governor fare, mano a mano against some journalistic hack? Well... It depends on who you ask. Senator Malarkey said, It was a good fight, as much as I saw of it, but I failed to see the start. A correspondent who penned about the melee was a bit less commendable. The encounter was so short and so quickly ended that it would have bothered even an expert referee to have given a decision on points. There is a third class of criminal insane, moral degenerates, moral perverts who cannot be reformed, and who never could be. These men 
would fall under the provisions of the bill providing for the sterilization for the criminal insane. Such a move would not merely be a protection to society, but at the same time would prevent this class from reproducing its kind. The governor was also quite outspoken in his desire to sterilize the homosexual men of Oregon. As historian Peter Boag points out, homosexual was not a term much used in the 19-teens to describe same-sex relationships. Accepted terms at the time were filled with judgment and disdain, sexual perverts, sodomists, and degenerates were the era's unfortunate similes. Let's listen to the governor's thoughts on the matter in his annual message to the legislature in 1913. Degenerates and the feeble-minded should not be allowed to reproduce their kind. Society should be protected from their curse. Our asylums and our prisons are being populated afresh through such parentage. We confine the vicious and the irresponsible for a while, only to send them forth to blight the future by the creation of defective children that shall grow into criminal or the imbecile. Society is crying for protection and the protection should be given. False modesty in the past has caused us to speak softly and handle this subject with gloved hands. Recent disclosures have emphasized the fact that the time has come to speak aloud. West was referring to what we today call the Portland Vice Scandal of 1912, in which it was revealed to the public that Portland had a thriving homosexual scene in the heart of the city. It was revealed that city parks and public restrooms at the fancy schmancy Imperial Hotel and even the YMCA were hangouts of homosexual men. More than 50 men were implicated in the scandal. It's interesting to note that even though the details of these headline-grabbing events were inked across the city almost daily, in his legislative address, Wes is only able to refer to them in the most cloistered, and one might say, closeted, of terms. The state has been shocked by the recent exposures as to the degenerate practices. But this is an old story to those who deal with our jails and our asylums. Should you gentlemen desire to investigate this subject, I would refer you to the superintendents of the penitentiary and the asylum. But do not delude yourselves with the idea that these conditions are confined within the walls of our prisons or asylums. These degenerate slink in all their infamy through every city, contaminating the young, debauching the innocent, cursing the state. Two remedies are needed. One of prevention, another of cure. We have from session to session 
been considering the first. We should now act on the two. Sterilization and emasculation offer an effective remedy. I would recommend, therefore, that a statute be enacted making it the duty of our state penal and elemasonary institutes to report all apparent cases of degeneracy to the State Board of Health. It should be made the duty of said board to cause investigation to be made, and if the findings warrant, to cause such operation to be performed as will give society the protection it deserves. Governor Oswald West, Beach Saver, and Ball Lopper. In a 60-year period, more than 2,600 Oregonians were sterilized by state institutions, many against their will, and many for merely being homosexual. politicians are assholes, and governors, beloved as they are, are still politicians. And when we assess their record years later, it's easy to just say, Tom McCall made the bottle bill, or Oswest made our beaches public, and assign this lone act to codify their legacy. But isn't that just a little simplistic? And isn't that just kind of fucking lame? The reality is, we get a better understanding of history when we examine the shortcomings of our political leaders, warts and all. We have a deeper appreciation of their accomplishments when we acknowledge their fuck-ups as well. Because yes, Oz West kind of gave us, Oregon's, the beautiful beaches that we experience today. But when you look at other milestones in his political record, including, maybe most horrific of all, his desire to sterilize homosexuals, Oz was really just kind of an asshole. But aren't we all really? And in probing the blemishes, don't we get a better, more complex, and more accurate picture of our political leaders? And that's what we're all about here at Kick-Ass Oregon History, giving you the straight shit on Oregon's past. So the next time you're walking on some beautiful, pristine Oregon beach, take a moment to thank Oswald West. But also, take a moment to sip on your cold Oregon craft beer. Take a moment to have a right to strike for a living wage. And take a moment to have some gay sex. And be glad as hell that not all of Governor West's political agenda followed us into the 21st century. I know a place. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. 
We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was brought to you by ORHistory.com. It was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kate Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Check out our website at ORHistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can sign up for our exciting Oregon history events, join our newsletter, pick up Oregon history merchandise, receive extra insights into podcast topics, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. Kick-Ass Oregon History is supported by listeners like you. You can support the podcast today. Go to orhistory.com and click Donate. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also like us on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. And as always, we'd like to thank our friends at Eastside Distilling, crafters of Burnside Bourbon, for their generous support. And be sure to join us to celebrate Oregon's birthday on February 18, 2014 at 7.30 p.m. at the Jack London Bar. Our own resident historian, Doug Kent Crispin, will spin true tales and interesting anecdotes of Oregon's past. There will also be cake, because a birthday party without cake is kind of shitty, don't you think? There'll be film watching we will unveil the winner of our third annual Diorama Contest. Details are available on our website if you'd like to enter. It's a kick-ass birthday party that you won't want to miss. So come on down to the Jack London Bar on February 18, 2014. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kate Crispin. He's been known to lop a few balls in his time, too. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass.